Hello. Welcome to the Bureau of Lost Culture. Step inside for another tale from the other side, from the underground, from the counterculture. I'm Stephen Coates, and in front of me, on my desk today, there is a rather beautiful little book that's just arrived. It's got a wonderful purple psychedelic cover, and in the panel in the middle, there is the portrait of a young man, a beautiful young man, and his face stares out at the viewer with a thoughtful, rather enigmatic gaze. And his face is a face that has haunted thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people or more. It's a face that haunted the members of the band that he founded and then left, or that left him. And I'm pretty sure it's a face that has haunted the life of my guest today. The face belongs to a man who became a myth, or rather, who became eclipsed by a myth. The man himself, you could say, started to disappear like distant ship smoke on a horizon, whereas the myth itself grew and grew and grew. I'm talking about, of course, Sid Barrett, the original founder of Pink Floyd, who for a few brief years was at the height of pop stardom, in some ways seemed to epitomize the counterculture beautiful, mysterious, talented, experimental, all those things. But who was to fall apart or fall from grace or leave it all behind and disappear? Returning for two wonderfully odd solo albums, Barrett and the Madcap Laughs, before disappearing again into the distance, out of sight and out of mind, I suppose you could say. He did suffer uh, from physical and mental health problems for much of the rest of his life. He didn't come back. It could be seen, I suppose, as a tragic trajectory of a young man, a young beautiful man and pop star. His story has obsessed many people for many years, right the way up into his death and beyond. He figures in the lives of several of the guests who've been on the show. Pete Jenner, the early manager of Pink Floyd, Jenny Fabian, the author, Nick Lair Clues, the musician, Sam Hutt, the doctor. He's also been cited as an influence by all sorts of people. Blur, Robin Hitchcock, Rem, David Bowie, even Johnny Rotten. But the myth has often obscured as eclipsed the work, his songs, and his lyrics. So I'm very pleased to have our guest here with us today to talk about Sid, to talk about the myth, the legend, but also to talk about the wonderful new book that he has written the foreword for, which is a compendium of Sid's lyrics, just 52 songs in his entire career, but 52 rather wonderful things they are. And he previously wrote what is generally regarded as the definitive biography of Sid Barrett, a very irregular head, and the biography that was written with the cooperation and approval of Sid's family. So I think we can probably rely on its truths in the face of the myths. So I'm really pleased to welcome Rob Chapman, music journalist, writer, and all sorts of other things, including... Doctor. He's Dr. Rob Chapman. Welcome, Rob. Hello. I know you keep the doctor a bit secret these days, but you are you have got a PhD in Sid Barrett, haven't you? Well, well actually, it is in kind of Sidology because I basically, there's two ways of doing a PhD. There's um, a PhD by research and, a, and what's called a PhD by publication. Um, but uh, so, yeah, technically it is a PhD in Sid. Yeah. Well, listen, uh, Rob, Dr. Rob, let's Let's just back up a bit uh, here. So 
Rob, you know, this show is dedicated to countercultural stories. And obviously, Sid Barrett, Roger Barrett, you know, he does figure in many of those stories. Interestingly, you know, I interviewed Pete Jenner, obviously talks about Sid, you know, and did a foreword to your book on Sid lyrics. You know, Jenny Fabian, Sid appears in Groupie. Uh, Sam Hutt, you know, Hank Wangford knew Sid, and he keeps, you know, he's there all the time in these countercultural stories. But for you, let's just talk about what counterculture means. I mean, what's your understanding of that much used word counterculture? I don't know. It's another one of those kind of binaries, you know? Because once you get into that whole idea of there's one set of values that are mainstream and one set of values that are underground. I have a lot of problems with that, I must admit. I don't think in a very binary way in those terms. But having said that, I mean, if you want to sort of loosen it up to sort of just talk about in things in terms of outside of the cultural norms, then there was a hell of a lot going on in the 1960s where I, you know, where you position Sid within all of that. And um, a lot of things that actually had started in the 1950s, like the English beat poets, for example, they were all going by, you know, well before the 60s. And a lot of that sort of stuff came to fruition all at the same time. It seems to me like a, a coincidence of tendencies, you know? So at the same time, you have experimental theatre, experimental arts, experimental filmmaking, and at some point within that, experimental music too. Although I think music comes to it quite late in the day, actually. Rock music certainly comes to it quite late. There's countercultural activity going on in all those other things and countercultural poetry too, well before rock bands start doing that in 1966-67. That's relatively late, you know. But I, I was only being sceptical at the beginning there because I don't like it when people then automatically make that hierarchical leap that one set of values is better than because there's always a hell of a lot of interesting stuff going on in the mainstream. And there's always very interesting ways in which you can subvert the mainstream too. Yeah, and that's interesting because in Barrett's case, um, you know, he seemed to be right at the junction for a couple of years of the counterculture and the culture, the underground and the mainstream. He himself and the Floyd were experimental, part of that whole West London uh, scene with Pete Jenner and Andrew King, their management. And then also, of course, they had this sign to your mind, and, you know, sort of pop stardom. And of course, he seemed to represent the kind of best of the counterculture and experimental avant-garde uh, psychedelic stuff, didn't he, for a couple of years with those, but also writing those pop tunes. And, you know, it's interesting having Pete Jenner uh, in to talk about that time. You know, I'm sure you know Pete himself, uh, you know, also that Cambridge connection that Barrett and the Floyd had. Uh, he studied there and then came back to London at the LSC and was, you know, was an academic, but, you know, stumbled across them at the marquee one Sunday afternoon and, you know, decided, okay, uh, I'd like to be a music manager and got involved with them. And of course, you know, took them on that journey from, you know, avant-garde underground darlings up to, you know, pop stardom uh, before, of course, it all started to fall apart for Sid. And What's quite interesting with Pete and is that, you know, he carried on. He was both music management, um, not with the Floyd, obviously. He stayed with Sid. But, you know, he was very involved in that West London countercultural scene, political stuff with other people from Cambridge, you know, Hoppy, etc. And uh, the free school and, you know, the events at the Tabernacle with the Floyd and uh, International Times. 
And, you know, that kind of social, more social active, activist side of the counterculture. And, um, you know, it's quite, it was all, it was political stuff, right? But it's, it's grassroots politics as well. I mean, they're not mm. just ideologues, those people, you know. I mean, what Pete and the rest of them were doing and, you know, and Hoppy and, and everyone were trying to do with the free school, I think was wholly admirable because they were, they were involved in stuff that was grounded in grassroots politics. I mean, it, it did lead directly to stuff like, uh, everyone mentions the carnival, it led directly to the carnival, which it did. But it also led to things like fair rents and rent tribunals and people trying to get decent housing stock, for example, in that post-Rackman era, you know. And, that, and that's a kind of, I've always been intrigued by the way, politically, the counterculture did go off into, for want of a better term, politicos and mysticos, you know, and the politicos, they did all find their way into things like the squatting movement, yeah. and actual, you know, and, li and liberating public spaces for entertainment. Mm. Whereas the mysticos, of course, do all go off uh, off into reading the I Ching, I Ching, and um, perhaps taking the overland trail to India and that side of things. And it did diverge very strongly. And in in, in Notting Hill in the late sixties, mid to late sixties, and in the indeed in the early seventies, I think it veered far more towards the political end of things than the mystical end. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Pete's quite modest about it, but I mean, the Free School also was instrumental in the setting up of International Times. You know, the International Times itself, you know, was instrumental in the setting up of like gigs at the Tabernacle, which with Pink Floyd and various other people, you know, and then the, the Hyde Park concerts. So it had this very activist, uh, 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 very activist um, theme to it, which of course ended up in the flowering of some way of the counterculture in social action, didn't it? But let's, let's swing back to you uh, a second, Rob, because we're going to talk about, you know, your work on Sid Barrett's life right now, you know, a very irregular head, your biography, it's a few years ago now, but it was um, the biography of Sid Barrett that was written after he died. And, you know, by most critics has been hailed as the biography it's a myth-busting biography but also it's kind of written out of a deep love for him isn't it because you were a big fan when you were young and maybe tell us about that when did you first come across the name or the music of Sid oh I can answer that direct sitting on a wall outside the wreck one early spring evening in 1967 and an older mate had there's always an older mate who had a transistor radio I was like 12, 13 at that time, but I, I hung out with a crowd two or three years older than me, a bit like Sid, actually, come to think of it. And I can still see him, a guy called David, um, standing there with his radio, and they played Arnold Lane. I think, oh, it must have been on Radio Caroline, because Radio London banned it in a, a, a fit of moral panic because it was about a cross-dressing person. And he said, this is Pink Floyd, they're going to be big. And I, I, I still remember this because I loved the record when I heard it, the fact that an older boy was endorsing it and giving it kind of validation, you know, when you're 12 or 13 and you're start, starting to get that way inclined towards the Technicolor end of things anyway, I thought Pink Floyd, what a wonderful name. And so, I, you know, I have a very clear memory. It's there, sitting on that wall outside the wreck, early 1967, hearing Pink Floyd late one afternoon, early evening on my mate's transistor radio. Terrific. So, um, and how did it develop then? I mean, you, you, you obviously started listening to Pink Floyd, did you? And then you followed it all the way through. No, I didn't have records because I came from a sort of uh, not very well-off working-class background and we didn't have many records at all. 
I saw them on Top of the Pops. So I used to see them on Top of the Pops. I saw them on one or two other TV shows. But yeah, I, I, I love I loved the band. I love their early stuff. And Sid at that time wasn't mythical in the slightest. And even in fact, when it announced in it, I remember seeing a little feature in NME saying he was, first of all, that David Gilmore had joined and they were now a five piece. And then a few weeks later, he left. And then he kind of just slips out of my consciousness for two years because, you know, I'm 14, 15 and you're not spending all your time sort of harking on it, harping on about, oh, what's happened to that guy? He used to be in Pink Floyd because he comes back a couple of years later doing something else, you know. That whole myth thing, which I'm sure we're going to come on to, that really begins, I think, um, with Nick Kent's famous piece for NME in 1974, wasn't it? Easter 74. That's right. Um, although since then, I mean, I've gone back and looked at that, Michael Watts interview from 1971 in Melody Maker, the one where there's a photo of Sid with close cropped hair. He's got his hair cut for the first time in years, you know, and that begins with stories about Sid Barrett, a legion, and then goes on to list all these stories about Sid Barrett, none of which I'd heard at the time. I mean, Michael Watts said the legion and after a while you think, well, they are now <laughs> because you've now mentioned all about Sid getting into his mini car and bombing off all over England and, having all this weird eventful sort of times, you know, so as again, but even with that, I did not think of him as this mystical mythical figure. I liked the music. I liked the art. And when Madcap came out, I took to it like a duck to water and none of it struck me as being weird. You know, the difference between you at 12 or 13 and hearing Arnold Lane for the first time, you're a different boy by the time you get to 60, 15, 16 and Madcap comes out you've kind of progressed and evolved a bit culturally. And I was up for a bit of weird anyway, you know, I mean, I was an avid listener to John Peel's top gear because that would play all that stuff. But a lot of the time, sometimes you were searching for a weirdness. It wasn't there. Most of them were just like regular boogie merchants, you know, and uh, a lot of the music wasn't that weird at all. And Sid's kind of facility for wordplay. I always kind of related to that on a very intuitive level. I got the lyrics. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, if I was, if, in fact, if you hadn't meant if you hadn't mentioned it, I was just about to mention the fact that I think I read somewhere that you, you used to trip to list, whilst listening to Sid. Is that right? You know, I first I first took acid in 1970, and then after that, it became a bit like Smarties for a while. You know, Sid, I'm not advocating drugs here. It was it was just acid, which was kind of sacramental to me. Yes, I used to listen to um, Madcap all the time, and and the Barrett album, and Madcap in particular, the kind of the cadence and the meter and the, the, the broken sort of irregular meter of those songs mm. was kind of second nature to me, well, tripping. There, there, there's a rhythm and momentum there, which is the rhythm and momentum of acid. And I, I don't see that as morally prog- problematic. It was just part of his makeup, you know? Yeah, I mean, you describe it, I think, in this uh, new forward, as, uh, which I loved, actually, uh, this bebop dexterity. Funny, you, because when you asked the question there, the bit I was going to cite was, yeah, the lyric at the beginning of Apples and Oranges. Yeah, got a flip-top pack of cigarettes in the pocket, feeling good at the shop, stop at the shop in the shop, and it's the she's walking, and it's that, it's the she's walking, well, you know. Anyone who's, you know been there on those psychedelic trails we'll get the kind of you know we'll get the sudden veering off the diver but also i think you talk about the bounce and that was interesting to me because there is this bounce in so many of his lyrics and of course he had a bit of a bounce in his walk didn't he there's the odd bit of footage of him there's a very short bit of footage on youtube with him going into a club i think in london 
and you see that walk, yeah, yeah, so he's got that. And there was a bounce to his momentum. And and in the happier days when he was young, everyone loved him because he has such a sense of humour and he was sharp and funny and witty. And it's there in the music, it's there in the lyrics. Yeah. It's there in the clarity and concision of those early lyrics before he's got muddled, before the fog has set mm. in there and he's getting a bit scrambled. It's there in the simplicity of those beautiful, simple lines, you know, Emily tries but misunderstands, you know, just that, just that alone, you know, who, who else was writing like that in pop? Maybe Ray Davis, maybe. I'm trying to think anyone who was that clear and conversational as he was. Yeah, sometimes the Beatles. I mean, you say this thing, which is, this is what made sense to me, was, is that he wasn't rock and roll. He was much more aligned in those early days with, you know, Lewis Carroll, Edward Lear, John Clare. That was an interesting one because of the, the you know, the mental stuff as well. Uh, and then, you know, later on you talk about automatic writing, symbolist poetry. It's not actually rock and roll, is it? And that's the thing that made sense to me is this, that he, even though, of course, the myth pushed him towards this kind of rock and roll myth, the burnout and all that sort of stuff. In terms of his words and even his melodies and his funny rhythms and stuff, it wasn't rock and roll at all, was it? No, there's two very divergent things going on and neither of them have that much, well, only tangentially, to do with rock and roll. On the one hand, yeah, he's grounded in this kind of Lewis Carroll, Edward Lear kind of world of writing and 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 a lot of childhood stuff you know um not both on the personal level and in the writing style on the other hand he's into a lot of very advanced experimental stuff this is also partly through cambridge because older mates of his they were putting on happenings and immersive environment shows and early light show stuff you know that was all going on and of course he you know he was introduced to things like amm and the kind of avant-garde experimental end of playing guitar and and in the middle there, you've got all this mainstream of boogie stuff. I know they started off doing versions of Smokestack Lightning and stuff like that, but he was, he was grounded in English literature and he was very ungrounded, very elevated into whole kind of areas of experimentalism, um, which is, an inter- again, a very interesting mix. This is someone who could write hit singles, but was also into completely experimental abstract art, poetry and the rest of it and and very experimental methods of working with that stuff you know writing with found lyrics and found poetry and cut-ups and stuff like that and this all despite the fact that as you say is is that he got the lowest possible pass grade in english lit for his all levels right oh he was not a bright he was not that bright a scholar at all i got access to all the school records for all of that lot it was very interesting actually um roger waters and storm thorgerson's and sid's final grades and you know record of academic achievement and um yeah sid left school with three o levels um which was the average at the time and one or two people have said that oh sid was never that intellectual he was never that widely read for instance he was wonderfully intuitive and worked with what he took in and absolutely absorbed it very quickly and then distilled it and there was an output a tangible output I want to go back to that thing you said a minute ago about, you know, you could write, you could write pop songs or hit pop songs, hit songs. Because did he, though, did he really write hit songs or did in some way the culture, and I'm not talking about counterculture here, but we're talking about the mainstream culture, coincide with what he was doing at the time, which was quite unique, right? So it wasn't really that he actually wrote hit songs. And wasn't that a problem later? Because actually the culture coincided with what he was doing at that time. He was always moving, but then they were expecting him or hoping that he would kind of carry on producing these hit singles. Well, signing with EMI helped. I mean, let's face it. I mean, actually getting in there with, you know, um, Pete Jenner when he did and signing to EMI, 
that helps immensely. Suddenly they had big budget, Abbey Road Studios and the rest of it. You know, if Arnold Lane had come out on, I don't know, some obscure English label, who knows if it had done as well. I mean, I understand um, um, Arnold Lane was kind of helped into the charts as well, particularly into the pirate charts with a few backhanders and a bit of payola. That sort of thing went on. That was rife at the time. I mean, there's, that, there's nothing new in that. Hey Joe by Jimi Hendrix was upped into the charts by exactly the same methods. You mm-hmm. know, that went on quite a bit. You know, the pirates were fairly amenable. You know, and fairly lo- they had some fairly loose ethics on those stations, shall we say, mm-hmm. regarding airplay. You know, and paying for it. <laughs> And so right place, right time, I guess. Mm. But then, of course, the pressure, as you suggest, comes when it's right, we need another hit single, Sid. You know, those first two easy peasy. After that, come on, we need a third one now, you know. And he's, you know, suddenly you're pushed into a world. And by then, I think he's thinking, you know, this is not what I signed up for. I don't think he thought about any of us all. I don't think he thought of anything in terms of signing up. He could do it, so he did it. And because, as one or two people mentioned to me in a very irregular head, the fact that it all came so easy to Sid mm. becomes a bit of a problem after a while. Because it comes so easily, you do it and you don't think about any consequences whatsoever. And then you go on to the next one and you can be a bit slapdash, but someone will go, oh, no, you can't be that slapdash now. Mm. We're professionals. We've got to do this properly. I mean, I personally, I think Apples and Oranges is a fantastic record. I think it's a wonderful single, but being, you know, stepping back and being a bit objective about it, you can clearly see that that is not a top 30 hit record. There were lots of interesting psychedelic singles around at the time, just like that, that were never going to make the pop charts. Yeah, and as soon as the as soon as the light's shining on you, and it's like you've got to do what you did so easily, so naturally, and suddenly it's actually you've been expected to do it to order. You can imagine that's when the pressure really sets in. Before we carry on with Sid, though, let's just go back to you a sec. So you, as a kid, you'd heard him on the radio. Then you know later on, after he left the Floyd, a couple of years go by, he comes back with his solo stuff, which you're really digging digging and taking acid to. Um, and then what happens? I mean, like, what I'm trying to do is a big leap, Rob, uh, of decades, but I'm getting you from there to writing Irregular Head. What's the, what's the thread that connects those two periods? You as this sort of young Sid fan and then you as Sid biographer. You know, Nick Kent writes that piece, and at the time, Sid, there wasn't a cult of Sid at all. In fact, the week that NME piece appeared with Sid on the front cover, I initially <clears throat> didn't recognise the photo of Sid because it's that kind of windblown one from the front, but stormy sort of backlit lighting. And I thought, and I read, oh, that's Sid. And, and then it was like, oh, why is Nick Kent writing about Sid Barrett? And why is this on the front cover of NME in 1974? This is interesting. And of course, it was a fantastic piece. And that did a lot, I think, to establish the kind of legend of Sid. So I was very taken with that. But I do have to emphasise how people weren't talking that much about Sid in 74. There was the occasional sighting, but that kind of stuff appealed to a very small minority of people. Um, you probably have to also mention the fact that I wrote for Terrapin, the, the very first Sid Barrett fanzine. And because I did happen to go and see Sid Barrett stars at Cambridge Corn Exchange in February 72, and that only came about because I happened to be in Cambridge the same day, and me and a mate were in Red House Records, and we looked down on the counter and there were some little flyers, and it said Barrett Monk, um, Alder, I think, or Barrett Monk Twink. And I just said, apropos of looked staring at the thing, saying, is that Sid Barrett? And he goes, yes, all right, so we went. These were these last two, three shows that he did as the band stars. Uh, he disappeared for a couple of years and then resurfaced with Twink and John Alder and supported MC5 in another one or two, isn't it? And then uh, didn't get particularly well received and he seemed to, you know, 
send him off again and he just disappeared. So you were at that final show, right? We were in Cambridge for the afternoon. We went that evening. Saw what is now a legendary last final gig, but it wasn't particularly legendary at the time. It was just another gig, but it's great to see him again. And of course, then he disappears. And I think, you know, the bit that explains the leap that you're, you're talking about there is the absence. It's the sheer absence of Sid that in itself then becomes interesting. You know, and there are just occasional sightings, occasional pieces about him. And then, of course, the story does get a bit, when you do hear some of the later stories, it starts to get a bit sad because, you know, he's obviously back home living with his mother and um, things are not good. You know, he turns up at the Wishing Were Here sessions, mm. 16 Stone, and, you know, when you see those photos, what he looked, you know, my sister thought we had the Largactyl slouch. My sister was a psychiatric nurse for many years and she recognised the posture. So he looks in that those pictures like he's on medication, and the picture so, there get, get, the picture there gets very sad. But to to move forward to writing a very irregular head, well, what happens, of course, is that Sid dies, and um, I saw that on the news. It was very odd seeing him being talked about on Newsnight. You know, this countercultural mm-hmm. figure, in the same way as odd when Mark E. Smith died, you know, or John Peel, and and they have these people on Newsnight talking about them. You think, wow, you know, this the legend really has taken off. And I wrote the obituary piece for Mojo magazine. What happened from that is when I acquired a literary agent, she asked me what I'd got. And I said, apropos of the fact that Sid has died, it would be nice if someone did, you know, uh, did justice to him in a decent biography. And then suddenly, within a few months, it happened very quickly. We had a contract, favour and favour, which was wonderful to be able to do that book. And you mentioned that it came out in 2010, but there was a new paperback edition came out last year I'm not kidding. I still get, you know, on average one or two emails a month asking me about the book. It seems to have had one a much longer shelf life than I could ever have envisaged. Right. Well, we should, we're going to come back to that one for a start. But I mean, also the thing, the big difference was is that obviously he's dead, so you can do the whole life. But also you were, you know, you wrote it with the cooperation and approval of his sister, didn't you? And I think that was the first time that had happened, hadn't it? And also, you know, you set out to put the record straight. I wanted to read one of the reviews, actually, um, which is, this is The Wire, saying, Rob Chapman bravely hacks his way through the undergrowth of innuendo and speculation to give us the clearest insight yet into the rise and fall of one of Rock's greatest enigmas. His critical analysis inspired his panorama of what he called Barrett's found world. An unprecedented meeting of a whimsical English tradition and modernist techniques is impressively researched. I mentioned that one particularly because, of course, that is very, very relevant to this new book, which is the lyrics. You know, when you when you, that found world and the whimsical in, English tradition and modernist techniques are all there in the writing. Now, the other review, which I thought was interesting, this is Julian Cope, you know, talking about your book. And he says, Rob Chapman's impeccable research is nothing short of that of a culture hero. Again and again, Chapman trolls up specific poems and children's rhymes. Whence came Sid's endless lyrical plunderings? Until you begin to groan at your hero's muse being so spectacularly outed. Obviously, Julian Cope was massively influenced by Sid Barrett himself in lots and lots of different ways. And what you did, of course, as well as in terms of the lyrics, you found many of Sid's sources where he'd plundered stuff, previously unknown. But also, I suppose, in Regular Head, what you did is you did dismantle the myth. And that myth, maybe it was the Nick Kent piece or the other one that you mentioned, which had grown up around his absence. And in a way, what you did was that you you, you took that down, didn't you? 
Yeah. Um, I mean, to be fair to Nick, when you go back and read that original Nick Kemp piece in NME, he qualifies all of those stories with he's very careful to say this may or may not have happened. You know, and I give Nick credit for that. He didn't create the myth. He, he brought up the dominant stories that formed the myth world and then said, you know, take this with a pinch of salt or maybe it happened or maybe it didn't. And what happens here, I mean, this, this ties in with my long-term view of things. I've been paying attention, you know, I've been paying close attention to pop music all my life. And particularly, you know, in my peak years. I mean, I was that kid at school who sat at the back and mucked about and indeed left school with two O levels, but I was paying attention in pop class all the time. And then what starts to happen throughout the 1970s is I got a much clearer angle on this as time went by is you start to see the mythical 1960s being invented. You've moved away from the 60s you lived through and then you see the myths start to develop and then you see the myths start to grow wings. You see another little bit being added on to the myth and you think, oh, they used to say it was that. Now they're adding this bit on. And that's always been a kind of bugbear of mine, the way people invent the world. And it's not just in a spirit of kind of mean revisionism. It's kind of, it's kind of, hmm, it wasn't really like that. And the reason I know it wasn't really like that is because I was there. And also because I remember the first time that story came up and they said this, and now you're adding this bit to it. So in the end, Sid seems to be made purely of myth. After a while, he is just the, the sum total of his myths, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I took a few of them to task. They were very easy to dismantle. I mean, the Mandrax and Brokering one, the famous, which actually Sid begin, um, Nick Kemp begins his piece with. Well, you better, give, you, better, you better tell us the myth so that we can, we can hear how you dismantle it. The idea is that Sid went on stage and at the last minute he rubbed loads of brill cream and mandrax powders into his hair and under the hot lights on stage he appeared to be melting. Now, um, various people have said to me, Sid wouldn't have wasted good mandrax like that for starters, you know, all the silly things to do. And then other people, some people say, oh, it happened in America on tour. Other people say, oh, no, it was at the Roundhouse. And they think, oh, they can't even agree where this happened. That's interesting, you know. Was it the joke I make in the book? I think was it even brokering? Was it some other proprietary, you know, hair conditioner? You know, <laughs> was it by Talis? We'll never know. And also, you know, in the end, after a while, you just think, well, what's any of this got to do with the arts anyway? Who cares? And it was probably some guy tripping anyway who just saw him and thought, oh no, Sid's melting. You know, <laughs> the whole room was melting. I mean, but the one that always got me was, again, which does have its basis in truth. Sid was on, was it on Foreman Sierra with uh, Rick Wright and Rick's um, wife? And Sid was having a bit of a bad trip in a thunderstorm. Now, this is entirely understandable. I can imagine if you're going to freak out anytime on LSD, it may well be in an incredibly heavy thunderstorm. But again, the myth takes up over the, over the years about Sid was screaming and ranting. And I think in one of the more recent versions I saw of it, it was um, he left his fingernails embedded in the plaster on the wall. People can't even tell you who the session musicians were on the earliest Madcap sessions, right? Nobody even knows that. But somehow they know, they know exactly what Sid did on a, on a trip on some day when there was only three or four other people there. Oh, the other one is Sid running onto the... Um, onto Heathrow Airport, on, onto the runway to sort of try and hail a plane like it was hailing a taxi. You know, as you would in 1974, when hijacking is at its peak in the Western world and security at airports <laughs> is, you know, looking for, oh, yeah, yeah, here comes Mr. Looney Man. And, of course, that's what it is. It's Mr. Looney Man. It's, that's what a loony person would do, isn't it? You know, don't be silly. 
1974, when Carlos the Jackal rules the world? I don't think so. You still get people writing that same Sid story. They still write their pieces with the same old, same old. It's the same narrative, but they're ever looking at the art. But at least people these days are actually starting to take into account that actually some of those stories are just that. They're just fabrications. But, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because despite very regular head, right, the fandom aspect of the wants to believe in Sid Smith has continued. I mean, you've just got to kind of have a quick look through a sort of Sid Barrett Facebook group and you'll see that, you know, that all the same stuff stuff is being said. But I think there's something interesting there, though, Rob, because you mentioned then about the myths of the 60s, uh, the myths of the counterculture. And, of course, you know, this show is collects stories of the counterculture, and it's quite interesting. You can tell with some guests that, you know, they are mythologizing their own past, and other people like Pete Jenner are very keen, in a way, maybe goes too far the other way, to, to play down his own past, when in fact he did achieve many great things. And I suppose I, I understand that, you know, the counterculture in the 60s, um, it has been massively mythologized, as you say, as as pop music. But what I'm quite interested to explore is particularly in Sid's case, is why? I mean, do you think that, for instance, the myth of him as this almost like the shamanic mystical figure who saw through it all and turned his back on fame and, you know, the material world walks back to Cambridge and sort of retreats into this this kind of holy isolation, um, it's a sort of appealing story, isn't it? I mean, is it that we've got the need for those sort of figures that, you know, we need to believe that that kind of figure can exist? And it's much easier whether when they, they're rock stars who die when they're 30-ish, like Kurt Cobain and Hendrix and all that, or whether they have this sort of pseudo-death where they just disappear out of sight. I mean, there must be a need for that kind of myth, right? That's a very interesting question as well because it, it basically takes you into the and a function of fandom, doesn't it? Like, I'll tell you a story, to, as, as a way into that, I'll tell you a little story. I went to, um, it was an exhibition of Sid's art. It was before a very regular head was finished. I think it was in um, 2007, I went to this, 2008, in Cambridge. It was very enjoyable. I mean, all of Sid's old mates and everything, and people who had known him at college. It was a very enjoyable social weekend. But at one point, somebody came over to me and started talking to me, to me about Sid, and they started talking about their own mental problems. And I thought, this is very important to this person. You know, I wouldn't make light of any of this at all. I don't, as indeed, I don't make light of Sid's own subsequent mental problems, which were like long-lasting, like lifelong-lasting. But this woman was talking about Sid almost as a kind of conduit for her own mental issues. A couple of minutes later, somebody else came along on the left side of me and joined in the conversation, who also wanted to talk about their mental problems. These two really want to talk about Sid's mental problems as a kind of conduit as a way into talking and exploring their own personal issues here. And, and in fact, I, I literally bumped into Libby, Libby Gorsden, Sid's old girlfriend. And she was agreeing that, that for a lot of people, that is their way into Sid. He is, okay, he was the poster boy for psychedelics in the 60s. And later on, he becomes a kind of, again, I'm choosing my words carefully here because I don't want to appear insensitive about this at all. But there is that area of Sid that people like to explore where it's more about the mental issues than it is about the art in many ways. So that's one way. And on the other hand, yes, you mentioned Facebook groups. Um, yes, there's a couple of um, websites dedicated Sid, Sid sites. Um, some somebody refers to these fans as the Sidiots, and um, 
And I, yeah, I mean, I've had personal threats on those. Ian Barrett, of the, uh, you know, Sid's nephew, Ian said to me very early on, he said, you'll get the nutters. And boy, was he right, because you do get these people who think they kind of construct Sid in their own image or an idea of Sid in their own image. And of course, he mentioned myths, you know, they tell you as much about the people constructing the myths. And this, and in this case with Sid, it is a certain idea of what, how, how you don't function in society or how not to function. And it is, as you, as you suggest, it's, it's about the sheer absence of Sid. It's about the, the fact that he was never there to articulate or validate any of these things. To come back, he didn't come back. He didn't even shamble onto stage and play a bit of guitar like Peter Green was able to in later life, you know. Sid's absence becomes total. It's literally reduced to glimpses of him walking around Cambridge or bicycling to the shops, you know, or going to buy a newspaper. And even there, of course, there are stalker videos. You know, there is the famous one that crops up on YouTube now and again and gets taken down of someone who followed him around the streets with a camera, you know, which must have been very distressing to the guy. The facts are there in your biography, approved by the people who knew him best, by his family, okay? So, you know, in some ways that should be beyond debate, but it hasn't stopped the mythologizing. And, and what it seems to me is that somehow there is this need, the myth of Sid. Now, the other thing, of course, which happened is that Pink Floyd, the band themselves, post-Sid, massively contribute to the myth, don't they? Obviously, Wish You Were Here, the album, The Wall, you know, with Bob Geldof playing this kind of Sid-type figure. What was quite str- I found quite strange was that that BBC documentary which was made about um, Sid before he died, actually, which must have been quite strange for him if he saw it. Um, and it was... Right, and around about that time, um, something odd happened, I thought, with Roger Waters, which was that... The band previous to that had always been quite ambiguous about it all. So is Wish You Were Here and Dark Side of the Moon, are they about Sid Barrett or they're not? And they kind of like stayed, uh, I thought, rather tastefully silent on it. Right about that time, Roger Waters himself seemed to embrace the myth of Sid Barrett so that when he played Wish You Were Here, he was projecting... You know, a big photograph of Sid, I think it's the same photograph on your book, actually, on the screen behind him and made it very, seemed to make it very clear that, yes, this is all about Sid. But of course, that had the effect, surely, didn't it, of pumping gas into this chimera, this myth of Sid Barrett, right? Yeah, that, that's a difficult one. I mean, you're right to suggest, you know, the thing with Pink Floyd is, it's the fact that they do come, go on to be mega famous. It's not like Sid leaves a band that tootled along for a couple of albums and split themselves and then diverged off into other groups. They go on to be one of the most mega famous bands in the world. So a lot of people who join the Pink Floyd, you know, their year zero is Wish You Here or Shine On You Crazy Diamond, only know of Sid in retrospect. I'm treading carefully here, particularly because who knows what goes on in Roger Waters' mind these days. But they, um, you know, they they still do Sid's songs. I mean, I know I I know that they were haunted by what happened to Sid. I know that they appear to be, in some ways, Waters in particular was very callous at one point. I mean, I mean, he was in interviews saying, look, you know, having to deal with stories about this effing madman, and he called him that. He called him that in interviews, you know. And after a while, he kind of gets far more conciliatory. And in that documentary, he's very conciliatory. He says, you know, when you go back and listen to the early stuff, he says, you know, there's a heart and a humanity there. But I suspect it's, it's bemoaning the Sid that he knew when they were all 15, 16, 17. 
And you'd be the same, wouldn't you, if that happened to one of your mates, you know, regardless whether they were a rock star or not. It seems to have been done with love and trust and affection. I don't get the impression of rabid kind of exploitation at all. And after a while, they did, you know, Roger, um, David Gilmore in particular, made sure that Sid got his royalties, you know. I mean, Sid died with two and a half million pounds in the bank. Let's not forget that. He was, mm. he was comfortable. Not mentally he wasn't, but financially he was okay. Um, the way that they'd reacted earlier and the music that they made, which is possibly inspired and haunted by him, of course, is wonderful. You know, you put your finger on it, I think, there, is that if they'd been a band that after they'd kicked Sid out, they'd had a couple of albums and disappeared themselves. Or, I suppose the other way around is, is that if he hadn't been got so unwell and had carried on and did relative health and, you know, possibly retirement and done other stuff, the myth wouldn't have had chance to take root and blow up in the way it did, would it? No, it would have been like, I mean, Rocky Erickson or something, 13 floor elevators would be more of a parallel, wouldn't it? It'd just be this kind of, you know, odd guy who was once in a band that didn't make it make it big, you know. It's, it's all legacy, isn't it? It, it? it all down to the fact that he left such a small, Sid himself left such a small body of work. <laughs> it's all down to that in the end. It's the fact that there are only 50 odd songs. It's that, isn't it? It's a long trail, isn't it? It's a long comet trail. I've been pursuing, you know, the comet trail myself all these years, even wandering around Cambridge in the 70s. You could go up to Total Strangers and ask about Sid because he was still talked about. You could go in a pub in Cambridge in 1973-74 and if the conversation ever got round to Sid, someone would go, oh, you're into Sid, are you? Oh, that guy, the, that guy at the bar there, yeah, you see that guy over there? He used to teach him at art school. And I remember going and having a conversation with a guy at the counter of a bar, you know, one time, um, about Sid. I wasn't writing a book then, so I have no memories of what the conversation was other than this guy talking about having taught him mm. at tech college, you know. Mm. It's, again, it's a small town. It's a small town world and people knew people. You didn't have to go far to find someone who knew about, oh, yeah, Sid's doing this now, Sid's doing that, you know. I wondered also whether you thought that in some ways that his the myth of what happened to him somehow was kind of an evocation of maybe what happened to the 60s or something too. You know, you've got this, the, the wonderful period, 67, 66, 67, 68, this period of summer of love, summer of revolution, this countercultural spirit and optimism, the age of Aquarius. And of course, in the 70s, it all got a bit darker, a bit dirtier, didn't it? It hit, it hit the kind of buffers a bit. Was his myth the personification of that, you know, because he'd been the psychedelic prince, incredibly good looking, super talented, and then himself had sort of gone darker and deeper and stranger. And Except I think he always was a bit because, again, as I, you know, I make the point in that essay on the um, lyrics that, that there's always kind of sarcasm. There's a lot of sarcasm mm. and caustic wit in those early lyrics. Yes, there's things like Gnome and Scarecrow and the lovely fairy tale bounce of those songs, you know, um, and Matilda Mother. But at the same time, you know, he's doing Vegetable Man and... Uh, mm. And even Candy in a Current Bun, I think, has got a, a, quite an edge to it. The B-side of their very first single. And actually writing a song about a transvestite and ending it with, now he's caught a nasty sort of person. You know, there's no kind of, yeah, hey, man, this man's just expressing himself. It's like, this guy's a perv, you know. And in the, again, to be saying things like that in 66, 67 shows that the Sid's not just lost to the fair, fairy world. He's not just that guy. Right. He was a bright funny person you know he was sharply satirical spike hawkins that testimony from the poet spike hawkins in the book where 
you know, Spike's coming on all swinging sixes with him saying, hey, he said, you know, you opened up so many doors for all of us. And Sid just goes, yeah, but with cheap keys. <laughs> you know, I always found that, I thought that was brilliant when Spike said that. I thought Sid saw through a lot of that stuff. In that Michael Watts interview with Melody Maker in 71, they start talking about UFO and he says there quite directly, it could have come to so much more, but didn't. And Sid was very aware of that. He makes points about how he wanted the whole thing to evolve with lights, with theater, mm. all the things that Pink Floyd later went on to do. Again, double irony. Sid envisaged this isn't just going to be about singing pretty pop songs and you go on stage and do your act. What do you do? You go on the next night and do the same act. No. Mm. You know, he wanted, to, he wanted to do other things. And he saw the ways the counterculture could have developed and, in fact, didn't develop. There was this brief collision of tendencies which came together wonderfully for a while, in mainly in the mid-60s, mainly, like you say, about 65, 66, 67. But then after that, they all just diverge off again into their separate wave. Mm. Theatre goes off back to theatre, art goes off back to art, you know, music carries on as mainstream, popular rock culture music. And I love that brief period when they all merged and you saw all these possibilities, many of which never came to full fruition, some of which are still being picked up today, I think. I mean, I still have time for any band who would go on in a kind of immersive environment setting where the music is just a part of an overall bigger thing. You see, light shows, we haven't really talked about them yet. There was so much of them. They were first, you know, used at the uh, free school events as well. They were using very rudimentary light shows. And what the light show allowed Sid to do was not be in the spotlight. They allowed him to be immersed, to be absorbed in a bigger palette. And he loved that. You see Sid on stage on those few clips. He's not a, he doesn't throw shapes. He's not a kind of phallic thruster of the guitar. He just stands there in, in the light. And that's what I think he wanted to be. I think he wanted to be bathed in the light show. Once there's the spotlight on you, the performer, he didn't like that. He walked away from it. All those things that he was into, theatre and the light show, Pink Floyd, the band, then went on to kind of excel in, right, as well, including, obviously, by the time they got to the wall, not actually being in on the stage, you know, being hidden, right? In 68, Sid, before he left the band, and he's coming up with all his supposed mad schemes, at one point, he says, I want to get in a couple of sax players and some chick singers, as he put it at the time. And Roger Waters, I think, said at the time, Sid had all these mad ideas for a couple of saxophones and some chick singers. <laughs> what are they doing five or six years later on Dark Side of the Moon? Wish you were here, you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So um, did their immense success... Did that bother him or was he was he just immune to it or generous enough or big enough or just not interested enough for it to matter? Well, again, it's mostly hearsay, isn't it? There's stories of him turning up at some of the early gigs and just standing at the front and staring at, um, at um, his replacement as he started to think of David. And he seemed to know enough to know that they were recording when they were doing Wish You Were and this event is one of the kind of signal foundation stones in the wall that became the myth, the legend of Barrett Wright, because, you know, they're in the studio recording Wish You Were Here, <clears throat> and in particular, I think Sean and your Crazy Diamond, you know, with his lyrics, remember when you were young, you shone like the sun, now there's a look in your eyes like black holes in the sky, you know, 
Caught on the crossfire of childhood and stardom, blown on the steel breeze. Come on, you stranger, you legend, you martyr and shine. Come on, you raver, you seer of visions. Come on, you painter, you piper, you prisoner and shine. And they're Roger Waters' lyrics. Um, and, you know, many people thought they were about Barrett. And as they're recording the song and that album, he turns up at the studio uh, out of the blue. They haven't seen him for years. And, and in a way, this pins both sides of the story because the legend of Barrett maybe is encapsulated in those lyrics, but they're shocked by the presence of him because he is so changed. They haven't seen him for years. He turns up, the the wonderful curly locks are gone. He's shaven head, his eyebrows are shaven. He's put on lots of weight. Maybe, as you said, it was the largactyl side effects, you know, which include blank facial expression, widened eyes, black circles in the middle of the eyes and uh, weight gain and all that stuff and agitation, he's very agitated and understandably people have speculated, you know, why would he turn up at that particular time uh, you know, and ascribe possibly some mysterious insight or intuition to it, but in fact you point out in the biography that it was an extraordinary coincidence and very odd but it was probably a bit more prosaic that somebody had told him that we're there and he just decided to show up for some reason. So again, it's the Cambridge grapevine. Someone had mentioned to someone and he was still around a bit, you know, and again, there's just, it's all hearsay and anecdote, but there's the stories of them playing him the track and one version of it says, you know, do you want me to put some guitar on it? Another version of it, I always found it interesting was um, when he, he apparently he said, it sounds a bit old. In other words, he didn't think it had progressed very much. I thought, you know, I can imagine him. And again, I can imagine Sid in 1974-75 saying something slightly caustic like that. I mean, not interestingly, I asked Pete Jenner about this too. I said, did you have any nights when you woke up in the kind of late 70s as, you know, Dark Side of the Moon was stuck to the top of the American uh, album charts, you know, and everything, oh God, you know, <laughs> everybody had sort of stayed with them. And, you know, he was extremely honest and generous about it. I mean, it, from his point of view, it was like, well, sure, in a way, but of course, you know, the reason that you're talking to me now, the reason that I was able to go on and do all the other things that I did is because I was one of the people who discovered the Pink Floyd. So, you know, for him, it was, he put it in context. I was just wondering whether for Sid in those later years, whether it was ever just painful, the fact that, you know, they were so successful. I think it was. And also, I think after a while, he just withdrew from it. And people did make various overtures to want to go and see him. <clears throat> and the family, Rosemary in particular, said... He doesn't like to remember that. It's, it sends him off in a bit of a spiral now. When he did get seriously down and depressed, I think that kind of thing set him off. And so people did make an effort to go and see him. Storm Ferguson, not long before he died, said to me in an email, you know, he said, I still ponder, what was it, Rob? What made him withdraw? You know, couldn't, couldn't, the fam couldn't anyone have done more? The fact that Storm was talking about that not long before Storm died of cancer. And I think that probably was there in quite a, quite a bit with the other members of the Pink Floyd as well, you know, could we have done more? And David always sent, you know, a kind of um, unilateral sort of conciliatory Christmas card every year, regardless of whether he got a reply or not, he always made sure a birthday card, a Christmas card got to Sid, you know, and I think he felt it very strongly more than any of them because he, you know, he'd known Sid very well. And it's mainly due to David that those solo albums even got finished, you know, particularly the Barrett album. It's in, the Barrett album is inconceivable without David's, not only his production work, but his playing on that record, you know, which is superb. They're a band together again. 
In fact, there are some tracks on that Barrett album, when you play the great What If, you know, what would the Floyd have sounded like if Sid had stayed? Well, there's three or four tracks, I think, on Barrett in particular. You we think, yeah, the Floyd would have still sounded like this, you know, with Sid still there. And um, they did care very deeply, I think, about it. And David, you know, of all, the, of, all of them, I mean, he's the one I've had most, um, you know, hands-on dealings with because after I'd written my first draft of A Very Irregular Head and sent it into the publishers, he got in touch directly and had seen it, you know, asked to see a draft of it. And the same with the lyrics book. As soon as he heard there was a lyrics book, David said, well, I've got all the multi-tracks at home. I can isolate the vocal tracks with Pro Tools and we can go through and find out exactly what um, Sid was singing. And in fact, a large part of last of the lockdown summer last year was me and David having a very enjoyable um, email correspondence, sending sound files backwards and forwards to each other with him saying, what do you think he's singing here? I think he's singing this. And um, and working out, you know, finally, in some areas, what Sid was conclusively, what Sid was actually singing. Well, I'm very glad you say that because uh, when I told a mate of mine that I was going to be speaking to you and I'd got this book of Sid's lyrics, he was like, oh, great, you can find out what Sid was actually singing in his song Rats uh, from that Barrett album because him and, him and a mate of his have been arguing for years over it. So, Ronnie, this is for you, okay? This is the uh, final two verses of Rats. Bam, spastic tactile engine, heaving crackle, slinky dormy, roofy wham. I'll have them, fried bloke, broken jardy, cardy, smoocho, mucho, packy, puftal. Sploshet, moxie, very smelly, cable, gable, splinter, channel. Top the seam, he's taken off. Rats, rats lay down flat. We don't need you, we act like that. And if you think you're unloved, then we know about that. Rats, rats lay down flat. Yes, 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 lay down flat. There you go, Ronnie, that's for you. It's all in the book, definitively. Now, Rob, let's talk about this wonderful book. You did it irregular head, and obviously Rosemary and the family, you know, you did it with their cooperation, their approval. And I'm assuming that because of that, that's why, um, you know, you got involved with this, this, you know, this beautiful little tome of, as you say, just 52 songs. You know, it's like one for every week of the year, isn't it? And um, these little kind of magical pearls, some of them dark, some of them whimsical, some of them frankly sad, some of them very funny i mean it's a it's a it's quite a little compendium so tell us how that came about and well um a couple of years ago now omnibus directly approached me actually i know i think they approached me through david gilmore's management that i was obviously the go-to guy to do this book which i was very flattered by and it gave me a chance to go back into the lyrics fresh i thought i'm ready now actually i'm ready to go back and listen to everything afresh and it's all still there exactly as i remembered it and exactly how that 12-year-old kid who sat on the wall outside the wreck in early 67 heard it. He's still there. He's always still there in my head. David came on board and said, right, let's do this properly. And we both agreed on this. You know, if we're going to do this, this is now the definitive statement on Sid's lyrics. Let's get this right. Let's get this absolutely right. And so there was a period of writing the essay, which was done by like, Christmas before last. And as I say, last summer was uh, most of last year on and off sporadically was me and David talking to each other about lyrics and, and me listening to sound files and deciphering stuff. And of course the great thing, I mean, the, the unique selling point of that book um, is at last we have the mystery solved of the spoken bit on no man's land where Sid goes, tell me, tell me, tell me. And then we don't hear anything else because it's buried 
under this sludge of sort of um, um, fuzz guitar. And finally, I mean, the day, one of the most amazing days in my life, and I'm not being, I'm not hyping this up in the slightest, was when David said to me, I've isolated it, I've got the vocal. And about an hour later, and, and he transcribed that, which took him ages because Sid speaks it very fast. And um, yeah, the, one of the most amazing days of my life was me in this very room where I am now, listening to Sid's isolated vocal on No Man's Land for the first time ever in my life and thinking, actually, outside of David Gilmore's studio, I'm probably the first person in the world hearing this. And man, you talk about Holy Grail stuff, you know, I mean, that, that's got to be right up there. That was one of the most right. proudest moments of my life to actually hear that, you know. Right, well, let's hear a bit. Here it goes. Tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me. You need, need me so well. Shut your shop, shut your shop. Listen, listen. The horizon glows like a dove and I see. From a mild, shiny ocean, choke and weave in a spinning wheel. Pick up and tell love to me. Open your door. Musty sugar with dust making stale it crows the near day. The cockerel, listen, listen, short chews of play. Freedom of emotions and cracking my spleen, cause we be us, is wishing. Pick up and tell love to me. Open your door. I mean, it's it's strong stuff, isn't it? It really is. You are only taking that at about half the pace Sid takes it. Because the thing that amazed me, first of all, is how fast he reads it. Because the song, of course, is quite slow and drawly, isn't it? It's like, you know, you would hold your head up high. You know, it's quite it's slow, isn't it? Song, slow, song, you know. But once he comes in with a tell me, tell me, tell me, you, you just get that, shut your shop, shut your shop, listen, listen. And, it, and, it, and he takes it at kind of Bob Dylan, speed freak, breakneck speed. He rushes through it. And in fact, then when you go back and listen to it with the headphones on, although you still can't make out the words, for the first time ever, I, I could hear that, yes, he is taking us at quite a frantic pace. I mean, no one's had ever been able to decipher it before. The only bit that I, only, the only bit I could ever really get at the time um, I always thought he was singing heavily spaced orchestra. In fact, what he's singing is heavily spaced all the crockery. <laughs> and what's also amazing about it is this was obviously another bit of Sid's found poetry because it doesn't correspond with the meter of the track at all. And when I mentioned this to David, he said, he said, I have memories of him having like scraps of paper, which he would read from. And the first thing I thought was this is such a source of frustration. In some ways it's wonderful. And in other ways, it just compounds the frustration that, of wondering just how much more of that kind of Sid stuff Sid had and how much of it was thrown away and lost. It, it would be, what would be great now is if they could actually remix a version now with, with, with that vocal up in the track. Well, maybe Gilmore will do that. I mean, why I don't not? Think the reason why that shouldn't be able to be possible now, that would be wonderful. And all the Sid fans are, you know, like me who have waited all these years to hear what was being sung there, we could finally hear it. How terrific is that? Well, Rob, thank you. Thanks for this book. It's a wonderful compendium of lyrics and poetry, actually, I would say. Uh, so we got to the end. Just before we finish, why don't you tell us, how do you think that 12-year-old Rob Chapman, sitting on that wall at the wreck, listening to Arnold Lane on his buddy's transistor radio, would have thought if he'd known that in later years you would have written the biography of Sid Barrett and then, you know, a new book forward about his lyrics? I went, I went back to my hometown a few years ago on a little kind of, you know, not exactly just a nostalgic mission, but 
I did notice that that's, that low wall outside the wreck, lots of other things have changed. The entire playground was sanitised, but you can't sanitise people's memories. And I thought what was so wonderful was the fact that the little low, that low wall is still there. I went, <laughs> I went and sat on it. Of course I did. I had to get back in touch with a kid who sat on the low wall. You know, Amazing. Well, we did it. Rob, thanks very much. It's been a gas. Thank you so much. There it is, Rob Chapman on the legend, legacy and lyrics of Sid Barrett and the book, The Lyrics of Sid Barrett with an introduction by Rob and a foreword by Peter Jenner uh, It's just been published by Omnibus Press It's a beautiful, beautiful thing I recommend it to you Thanks for listening, hope you enjoyed it and of course you can listen to any other of our stories and tales and testimonies from the counterculture, from the underground by going to bureauoflostculture.com We are also on all the major podcast providers now so you can listen there if you like and you can even leave us a review we'd love that anyway there we go see you hear you next time i was stephen coates i still am in fact <laughs> <laughs>